Welcome to BDO's Health and Life Sciences Rx podcast, hosted by BDO's Health and Life Sciences leaders. Learn more about the trends disrupting health and life sciences and how companies can survive in an ever-changing landscape. As the Care Anywhere model ramps up and the aging population grows and the industry focuses more on value than volume, there are a number of implications for healthcare REITs and private equity investors. We're seeing REITs changing their focus. Um, we're seeing private equity investors move into the senior housing space and, and skilled nursing facility space. And our next panel is going to talk about these trends and these factors that, that, uh, that, they should, uh, that one should keep in mind. So our panelists are as follows, and they're going to be coming up to the podium right uh, this moment. The first, uh, uh, panelist, first panelist is Jason Dupolis, Senior Managing Director with Lancaster Pollard, who specializes in capital funding to the senior living and healthcare sectors. Uh, Kent Iconis, President and CEO of Summit Healthcare REIT. Matt Jamison, Senior Investment Professional uh, on the Blue Mountain Healthcare Investment Team. And finally, Paul Mullen, Senior Vice President of Development at Silverado Senior Living. And of course, our moderator is Bobby Guy, well-known uh, healthcare and deal lawyer with Polsonelli. Thanks, guys. So I, I get the joy of um, getting to do a panel with um, four uh, very good friends. I'm still working through, though, that when Tom DeRosa came up, the, um, the music was Justin Timberlake, uh, Can't Stop the Feeling. And for our panel, it was Toto Africa, right? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how that works out. It may be that that's considered dad rock and we're talking on senior living, maybe, for the team? It may have okay. been the updated version. <laughs> oh, right, right, right. It was the... So we're cool again. <laughs> All right, so my, my theory on panels is that, that we have the most fun if, uh, if we make highly controversial statements and tell war stories. So I've, I've put all of the panelists on notice that, um, that we're gonna take a shot at that. So I'm gonna throw this out there. Um, since we're talking from the senior living side, right? we're talking senior living, skilled nursing, all of the convergence happening and everything else, we, we see often um, the idea that senior housing is just a real estate and a hospitality business. Anybody on the panel? say, yes, it's absolutely just a real estate and a hospitality business? I say absolutely not. No, it's uh, far from. And, and the, the reason why I say that is, you know, it's really an operational business. And you need to really focus on the operator first and the real estate second. Yeah, Bobby, coming from the operations side, Silverado being a standalone memory care uh, provider, assisted living operator and developer. With Well Tower as our partner, uh, Tom is our partner. We are absolutely looking at that combination of clinical with a hospitality component. I think it was said earlier, we got to find a way to make these communities more appealing. Obviously, all the amenity rich uh, type things of, of having nice pools and nice grounds and all those types of things are important. Um, but having a real clinical and wellness component is probably our, our strongest suit to reach down the age span to younger folks that want to increase their cognition rather than lose it coming to stay with us. And I think as Paul said, and I come from someone that finances uh, these facilities, that the amenities and how a facility may look and drive someone in the door is very important. So there is a hospitality aspect to it. 
But what we look at to determine the ability you know, to repay equity and debt is strictly coming from the operations. Mm -hmm. So we're evaluating you know, staffing ratios, nurse ratios, you know, how a facility state survey may have come out, and that affects the, their operating income, which affects their ability to repay their capital. So you know, the hospitality is great to get people in the door, but then it's really the nitty gritty of operating it that we as a bank evaluate to determine if we can lend or invest in a project. So as we talk today about all of the convergence happening in healthcare, for example, and, um, and we think about sort of the senior housing side and the real estate and the hospitality, has that been a mistake that people have made over the years? Is that fair to say? Have you all seen different people make that error of thinking, you know what, we can do this, we're great at this? I think well, people, I definitely think people are doing that now. And we were talking about this earlier, you know, we see multifamily folks come in and develop uh, senior living facilities, and, and it creates a lot of tension in the market because you have new facilities that are, that are dragging that, you know, may get up to 50, 60 percent occupancy and struggle. But what that does is it takes the marginal uh, potential resident and puts a lot more competition for them. Mm. And so you see that these guys come in and say, ah, it's a senior living Ah, uh, that's the same as multifamily. I'll just build it out. It's a memory care. Same as multifamily. I'll just build it out, and it really wreaks a lot of havoc in markets. Hmm. And so, as we talk about sort of senior care moving, let's say that we've got so much more sort of home and moving away from sites with this. Um, what do you guys see sort of in? Um, how does that affect the market? Let me ask you specifically. You guys have seen the ad for the financial advisor where the, and I bet the audience has seen this, where the, the father says to the, you know, the son, says, hey, dad, I think we're going to have to put you in a home. And the son goes and talks to his financial advisor, and then they build a house right behind his home. Right? Is that realistic? <laughs> you know, I, I, think, uh, I think it's absolutely realistic to a point. Um, coming from where we are in, in the dementia-specific world, uh, by no means should you have a loved one at home if they have... Uh, acute dementia, it's, it's just not a safe environment for them to be in. Not to mention, as Tom DeRose mentioned earlier, is loneliness is the bigger, biggest killer of seniors, really, and, and everybody in general, uh, depression is, is a killer. And being sitting at home watching TV, um, dosed out on medications your doctor gave you is no way to end your life. You, you know, we really like to consider ourselves the third life in assisted living and senior housing, where people come to us and they say, wow, I wish... I would have shown up sooner. You know, I have new friends. I have events to wake up. I have a purpose to get up in the morning and, and you know, walk the dog or meet the kids that came in from uh, the local school. So it really is uh, creating more than just that hospitality environment, creating that community, creating a purpose for people to wake up in the morning. It's, it's definitely an educational, uh, continuous education on educating the elderly that, you know, it is a better way of life. You know, you see a lot of elderly stay at home, like Paul said, um, not eating, getting dehydrated, no activities, just kind of just going brain dead. You know, when you go to a facility and you have good operations involved, you have tons of activities, great food, and the quality of life is just absolutely unmatched between staying at home and being miserable and just kind of just living out your days, we're thriving at a, a really good facility that, that can be beneficial for the, for the resident. And so does technology, do you think, start to change that? Do we, as we begin to look at all the home health, will that mean it's, it's 
a later date that people go in, or um, obviously you're not gonna get the, uh, the full experience, the community experience if you're at home. So even if it's less expensive for the government from a payor perspective, right, to have you get home health or whatever, does, that, does the new technology start to hurt the industry and really eat into the market for it? Or as the education improves, do we continue to see it expand? I don't know, personally, I think you see that, you know, the age at which people enter facilities has, has gone to the right. I mean, and that's been something that's been marching over time, and I think technology helps enable that. I think better health care, I think better understanding of, of your body and longevity help that. Um, I think touching back on something, though, that there is an important part of this, is that that community aspect is, from an investor's perspective, is kind of this amorphous thing that you know it when you see it, but it's extremely valuable. Because you think about the, when you're taking your parent and saying, hey, I've got to go uh, look for some place for them to live. You want to find some place that's compassionate. You want to find some place that has um, some degree of medical support. You want to find a, a place that, you know, let's say they're dealing with early onset dementia. They may be more prone to pull back because they're scared of what they're seeing in their forgetfulness. They're scared about what it means to their family. So they pull back even more away from community. Mm -hmm. And so if you're in a place that's more supportive around that, um, that's a special thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've seen a lot of the, a lot of the tech. I mean, we've gone to the Aging 2.0 conferences together, and it's, it seems like great technology to help people connect with their families rather than just in their room. But, you know, as Matt said, the community is very important because if you're at home doing that and you just have a new Alexa or something that can help you connect with your kids, you're still not talking to a friend about it or playing checkers or chess with someone over it or, or anything like that. So I think, you know, as Paul mentioned, the loneliness and, and that aspect is something we have to educate. You know, I'm doing it with my grandfather right now. He does not want to go, right? He mm. says, well, you got me this device. And I'm saying, well, you know, you need to have other people to share that with or you're going to be, you know, looking to call me or my sisters and we, we're not always there, you know, even though you want to be. So I think, you know, he wants a place that looks nice, so there is the hospitality, but then it's just the care, I think, is much more important. Mm -hmm. yeah, people have talked about technology putting uh, senior housing out of business. Well, in fact, I think it's probably the force multiplier that will allow us to reach what's coming down the pipe in the way of this age wave that's going to hit us in the next three to five years, already hitting us. Um, things like Honor, which is here out of San Francisco, which is kind of the uberfication of home health, they'd be a great partner for us. We, we've, we're in conversation with them to see how we could extend into markets like San Francisco or Los Angeles, where we already have communities, but we need better outreach to people that are stuck in their homes and, and still need care and, and convince them, hey, why don't you come in and check out our Nexus program and help the cognition and, and uh, brain plasticity come back through programming. And so we think through technology, uh, we'll really be able to augment the services we have today. It's definitely going to change, I think, the bricks and mortar of what we're building today. I think there'll be a revolutionary change in what we're all investing in and developing in the next 10 years because of technology, but I don't think it, by any means we'll put our, our business uh, at jeopardy. In fact, it improves it. That's very interesting perspective on it. And probably the Economist magazine would agree, right, that um, technology never takes away jobs. It just creates lots more new ones. And so for senior housing, very possible. Right, so let me, let me move to the investing side, um, thinking about the real estate specifically and, and about what it looks like. So what's investing look like right now in the market for senior housing when you're looking at sort of stabilized versus construction and value add? Let me put that out to the panel. 
So from a REIT perspective, you know, we're a lot less likely to take risks. So we're looking at more stabilized opportunities. The problem is, is the lease coverage ratio is much thinner in stabilized opportunities. Um, you know, we have ran into more issues with assisted living than we have with skilled nursing because we built in a lot more coverage with skilled nursing. But you know, I think with cap rates getting as low as they have been in the last few years, it's very difficult to structure a meaningful lease for a REIT. So you know, a lot of REITs have resorted to doing the RIDIA structure or just flat out doing management contracts, which is not, for Summit, that's not a, a good structure for us. So we really you know, stay disciplined in focusing on the opportunities that we can really structure a good lease that's a win-win for the operator and us. That's the REIT perspective on it. What if we took uh, maybe the operator perspective? Paul, from you. Yeah, you know, um, over the past uh, 10 years, we, we really focused on ground up development. We, we started our company with uh, about 10 to 15 communities that were everything. And we even reconstructed a hospital uh, to be a med search hospital in Redondo Beach to become uh, assisted living and, and residential. And, and I do think there's a huge runway for that. Uh, you know, as mentioned earlier, there's a ton of hospitals with tons of spare property. So I think there's a real opportunity to reposition that space for residential assisted. But um, we, we really felt over the past five or 10 years, we really needed to build purpose-built um, communities that, that are therapeutically designed to really treat people with dementia rather than try and reposition skilled nursing or assisted living. I, I think there is definitely a, a cohort in our industry that believes the days of kind of putting lipstick on an on a old building and trying to turn it around uh, are, are done because so many of those buildings are now 20, 30 years old. Um, it, it's really difficult to reposition that type of asset as opposed to building a new one. But it, it's definitely getting to the break point where we're looking in Seattle now, we're looking here in, in San Ramon, the cost to build here is astronomical. So it may be a good time to, to look back at repositioning mm -hmm. with those costs in mind. Jason, what's the, what's the finance piece look like for that? Yeah, I mean, from, my, from our perspective, we finance both you know, the REITs and the private equity. So I agree with Kent that cap rates are, are to a place where coverage is really tight on some assets, and that's where you've seen um, some trouble in you know, the skilled nursing sector, as Tom said before, where you know, the risk was more in the tenants, they can't make the lease payments, and then the financing crumbles. So when we're looking at you know, uh, where returns are coming from, you know, private equity groups, I think, such as Mass Group or even or operators, if they can build or reposition or turn something around, that's where they can uh, get you know, what they consider risk-adjusted viable returns. Um, REITs might look, you know, where they might have a lower cost of capital and low, lower hurdle, they're gonna be looking for more stable assets. Mm -hmm. And that market for the stable assets, we've seen, you know, institutional core funds now put senior living into their funds, where it used to be thought of as there should be a big spread over multifamily. You know, our sector, the NIC, you know, others are trying to make it so people see seniors in that same bucket. What that means is as, as we succeed in doing that, there's gonna be big funds that can pay you know, for buildings in San Francisco and LA, maybe five and a half caps and place it in a bucket with their multi. And, you know, what Ken's saying is he, he had trouble making that work with the lease coverage. So when we finance it, we have to stress all of that and, and make sure that we're putting the appropriate amount of debt on the real estate um, to not overlever the asset. Is some of that too much money chasing yield right now, or is a lot of that changing? Is it distress across the market because of other issues? 
I mean, I think, you know, I don't know if Matt wants to take a cut at that. I think there's a lot of money chasing our sector right now from there's overseas money, there's new, there's new institutional groups, and there's, you know, our small club that's been doing this for years. But I'd be interested in what you know, Matt thinks from a... Yeah, so, you know, I live in Dallas, and it's kind of a boom-bust economy in Dallas. And I see it on the, certainly on the senior living side is that there's been a lot of money that's flooded in. There's a lot of new memory care facilities. There's a lot of new ALIL facilities. There are um, some from very, very strong operators, some from people who probably are more questionable about whether they should have built it. Um, I think we think that the, the private equity opportunity is probably going to be one that's a little more stressed, distressed over the next couple of years. As you have interest rates move up, you have pressure on occupancies, you have pressure on rates. Um, a lot of the new build is going to create issues in, in specific submarkets, and, it, and it's you know it's hard to say specifically Dallas because it's you know it's a part of Richardson, it's a part of Plano, it's a, a part of North Dallas. These are very local businesses, but um, there's we think there's certainly going to be pockets of uh, stress and distress that are going to be attractive. Um, to investors like us because they will take some time to reposition, but the demographics that you alluded to are real. They're there. It's just a question of what is the timing of those demographics and how and, how and when do they hit. And I think we feel like that those, time, those things tend to come probably two to three years later than people expect. And so if we can buy into periods where there's more um, stress and then, you know, frankly, sell into periods where there's, uh, you know, uh, I think a little tighter supply and, and the demographic boom is hitting at the right point. That's what you know, we as private equity investors want to do. Mm. And right now, if you look at it, do you see that, um, I mean, we've seen a, a fair amount of private equity money come in over the last few years, but what does it look like now in the current economy and the outlook? What are, you, are we still seeing lots of private equity money chasing yield on this, looking for deals? Do you feel lots, see lots of competition on it? I'm not sure if they're chasing yield uh, per se, because you know, at a five cap, I'm not sure how much yield uh, that, that that can generate. But you know, I think um, on a on a return basis, I think they're willing to roll the dice and think that someone else can come in and pay a five cap and then generate some type of return that's meaningful to private equity. Um, again, if they're not working with the right operator, it, it's it's going to be a great opportunity for Matt down the road. Uh, I also think it's, it's tough. I mean, if you look at like, you know, Brookdale and Capital Seniors, public proxies, right? Their stock prices have, have not performed well over the last, you know, six months. And I think that's somewhat reflective of the environment that, that we're entering into. And I think that also reflects a little bit on, you know, private equity, will be, private equity will be in that same boat as they look to try to, you know, either buy at a five. And I don't know where you trade lower than that yeah. in the space. There's not a... There's only risk to it goes to six or seven as interest rates increase. If, how, how many years was it that everybody thought you couldn't break the five minute mile? When will it be that we break the five on the cap <laughs> rate? Yeah, right. I mean, like Kent said, I mean, you have to hope if you're buying, if you're buying there that you're going to be able to increase rents in a market where it's private pay and maybe that turns into a 650 or something down the road. But, you know, to go back to your original question, you know, there are funds raising a lot of capital for our space. And their decision is how much risk they want to take with those investments, right? If, you're, if they're investing and just doing a management contract, they're inherently taking more risk in the operations mm -hmm. than doing a lease. And they might be able to pay a little more because they're capturing more of the dollars of the, you know, of, of cash flow, but there's also a lot of risk to that. So at a point, you know, and a lot of these groups that are buying stable, they're trophy assets, you know. The ones that are turnarounds, no one's paying that cap rate. But, you know, when you see a, a 
brand new asset in Miami or in New York or in California, or you know, there's one in San Jose that was, you know, seven hundred fifty thousand dollars a unit or something that recently sold. But those are the ones that you see, you know, are in the mm. trophy areas. Yeah, it's interesting. There's definitely a rotation. We we just had a fifty million dollar investment from Artemis Private Equity, uh, and they really did their homework. More than on the real estate, they, they're investing in our hospice company. We have a hospice division. Um, our belief is that if you're not in palliative care or hospice in the next 10 years and you're in the assisted living space, you, you might be you know, left standing without a partner um, in the way of uh, partnerships with hotel, uh, hospitals and, and uh, acute care uh, payers. You know? um, so, so they really did their homework. They realized the strength of the operator more than just the real estate or the yield and, and put their, their money and their trust into investing in this kind of long-term view uh, of an integrated healthcare platform, not only memory care, but hospice, palliative care, all those things that uh, I think most uh, big, big hospital um, and, and insurance uh, payers are looking for in the way of partners and will be looking for. That actually brings me to a point in thinking about it. So we started off sort of talking on finance and what is this type of business, right? Is it really just hospitality? What does it look like? So let's talk now from, uh, from an operations perspective. I'd love to hear sort of across the group what um, the characteristics are of a good operator. Um, Ken, why don't you take it from the REIT perspective first and give us an idea. And then Jason, you can give us an idea of who you don't want to default. And then Matt, you can go <laughs> down the line. Yeah, so from a REIT perspective, you know, we, we really, when we go tour a facility, we want to see interaction with the residents, knowing residents by their names, um, you know, not necessarily from the corporate level. If you're a CEO of a larger uh, assisted living company, you may or may not know all the residents, but we have seen that, and that's impressive. And you know, we want to see lots of activities, nothing worse than going through a facility and it's dead quiet with residents stacked up looking at a TV. That's just the last thing we want to see. And then, you know, it's, it's not uncommon for the residents to say, hey, you know, the food's great or the food's not that great. So, you know, we like to hear the residents' perspective when you tour um, and a track record. You know, it's, we, we really value a track record for uh, the operators that we work with. You know, we don't, we don't work a whole lot on pro forma. We work a lot on what is been accomplished and you know if if it's replicable and sustainable yeah i mean i completely agree with ken and i think you know for someone who goes in a lot of facilities it's the your sensory you know what you sense right when you walk in can tell me a lot you know what you smell see what how's going on i mean that leads to you know you know if that building's well run Mm -hmm. and if i go above that to what ken was talking about is what we will look at is you know state survey or records of, you know, everyone has issues, but how do they, how do they address them and move forward? Is there sustained, you know, poor tags with the state or how are they doing? And then we look at that operator's uh, global kind of cash flow, how they run all their buildings, because, you know, we might walk into their, their winner, their best building. We want to know how their worst building is and do they still support it and how are they you know, going about that? So what Ken says is absolutely right. And then we kind of go one step above to see how they're operating on a on their, usually it's a regional level, right? There's not many national players, but how they're operating in their region. Right. Matt, let me put that to you then, sort of characteristics of what you guys see in a good operator, what you look for. And then, yeah. then Paul actually get to you as the operator. <laughs> and, well, I, th- I think first and foremost, we look for track record. 
right? Track record within a local environment. So we, you know, being investors, we start with the numbers and we work backwards from there and see what people have done and how then they achieve those numbers. You know, certainly have walked into facilities where there's people who are wailing or crying and, and you say, are you taking the right level of acuity or are you, you know, filling up your facility by, by taking people who are probably not appropriate for this care setting? Um, you know, we always want to eat lunch in the facility. Um, food matters. Um, so you want to actually have that look and feel. Um, but yeah, people who are, we want people who are, who are very local and understand the local markets or, you know, in the Kiwanis Club or, you know, um, you know, know the town mayor, those sorts of things that are, you know, they're part of the community. Paul, if I had lunch in your facility, what would I order? Yeah, you know, we, we um, as far as uh, nutrition goes, we absolutely buy into the fact that you, you are obviously what you eat. When it comes to memory care, there's any number of uh, nutrition elements, uh, green tea, uh, turmeric, other things that we know are curative to uh, memory disorders, so certainly part of the diet at Silverado. But, but more importantly, we're looking, and I think what people should be looking for, the, the first thing that Jason said really, when, and, and if you're investing or if you're even curious about senior housing, go check it out. Go mystery shop it, as we say, or shop it. Uh, how many people are smiling when you walk in the door, both residents as well as associates? What, does the executive director greet you? Are, are, are you seeing the top brass the management of that facility or that community, as we like to call it, um, they're out and about rather than sitting in their office, you know, doing uh, administrative work. If, if they're just sitting in their office avoiding their residents, then that's probably not a really well-run community. Um, so some of the simple blocking and tackling, but more importantly, what's the programming? And, and Jason mentioned that. Our, our programs around Nexus, the idea that you can bring cognition back to people that are losing it through simple programming. We believe we have a $2 billion Aricept type product that is non-pharmacological. It's, it's, it's programming. It's meditation, it's brain games. We use uh, UC San Francisco's Brain HQ as brain games with our residents. We actually have, uh, we have support groups where people with dementia get together and talk about the disease. They might forget it later in the afternoon, but boy, is that meaningful <laughs> to them right there and then to talk to somebody who can be empathetic about what's going on. It really makes a difference. It's amazing. And we proved it out using the MMSC scale, the mini mental state exam. We actually uh, keep uh, outcome data on everything and, and everyone. That's an important aspect of operators. Are they keeping the outcome data on their own residents? Can you go in and find out how mom's doing? But we're proving the people that were very high acuity and, and you know, really kind of uh, lost in the way of cognition are coming back. And if you walk into some of our communities, you might not be able to tell whether they're associates, staff, or residents. Mm. And, and that's powerful. We believe that's the future mm. uh, of where memory care should be going, is treating the illness and, and making people better and improving their cognition. Brain plasticity is real. There's, a, there's the ability for the brain to regenerate, and we're doing that with our residents. So those are the types of things you want to look for. Uh, the programming, the people, smiles, simple stuff. Yeah, no, you know, and that's the other side of the coin, but we've had folks come to us and say, hey, we're going to knock it out of the park. We're going to you know, hire a new administrator and cut the pay, which is the last thing you want to do because, in our opinion, you can never pay an administrator too much, and they're going to do all these different things that are going to make them you know, hit it out of the park, and we, we just do not put a whole lot of uh, credit to that. Mm -hmm. So I think we have just a few minutes left, so why don't we take questions from the audience, if any. Questions? Thanks, guys. Uh, I'm interested to hear your perspective on 
the key question of does the national operator model works? Mm -hmm. uh, or are we back to the basics of care is local, the, the balance between quality of care and span of control is only manageable at the regional level? And if so, what is the optimal size of a good operator at a regional level or local level? That is a great question. You know, from, from our perspective, we prefer to work with the local regional operators. Um, I, we're not big fans of the national guys that are from coast to coast. Uh, a lot of operators are successful you know, operating in all different regions, but we feel like we see most success with operators that know the state surveyors, know the, the referral sources, and the best way to maximize that type of situation is to stay in your, you know, your region. And we've seen a lot of success working with not only assisted living, but skilled nursing operators uh, in that regard. But, uh, as far as size goes, you know, I think it's case by case. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be willing to say that you know, this is the perfect number of you know, facilities for that particular operator in any particular region. I think state by state, you're going to see a number of beds in each state, and it's going to vary. Yeah, I think <clears throat> just specifically to talk about skilled nursing, we've seen that that model being national really is difficult for it to work. We've seen some large operators really have trouble. And it goes to what Kent said, you know, different states, knowing the hospitals, working with, you know, readmission referrals. So, you know, there may be one public sniff company that's doing, that's doing pretty good, and, and they, they have their regions under different brands, right? Because, you know, this brand in this state that's ran by this team, it's kind of like their own silo to, to, to do all the things Kent said. So, you know, his, what we've seen recently is that the national model has not, you know, gotten value in the public markets or worked all that well when they're someone that's really, you know, either leasing buildings or owning. We've seen management agents go all over. That's a less risky proposition when you're signing a management contract and you might be able to carry that brand to certain markets. But, you know, when we've seen groups that get too big, and again, I can't agree on the size, we've seen, you know, kind of diseconomies of scale where they've kind of broken apart. Yeah, it's, it's a funny business. Uh, it seems you need to have four to 10 communities for any of you out there or any of these guys sitting here for, for you to talk to us about investing in. Uh, and that, that's a happy, easy to manage size. We're now moving on to 40 communities, finally one on the East Coast in Alexandria, Virginia. And, and the wheels are definitely starting to shake because we need to build the infrastructure internally, which we're doing. We're hiring talent management pros, um, actually coming over from Disney and other industries. Mm. Uh, our, our biggest concern to scale isn't so much where we are. It used to be, hey, we want to be a three-hour plane ride away. Now it's how do we get people working for us? And like many other industries, our biggest challenge going into the next 10, 20 years is getting a million more people into the senior housing business that want to be caregivers and uh, executives and everybody else. And, and right now, we're all just trading the same million people that are in the business mm -hmm. today. There is an incredible amount of growth or outreach. Uh, only now are we starting to get to the universities and getting to the schools, the gerontology schools like USC and, and, and LA and Stanford here um, to really get students interested in the idea of, of aging and taking care of seniors. So that's our biggest problem to scale is people um, and finding the right people. And, and so looking at an investment, 
do they have a strong talent management and HR division? Do they have strong, probably operations more than anything? Do they have a strong operational team to lead a venture no matter how big it is? I think some of the, the speed bumps that we've hit um, on the big, big national platforms have been just bad investments, really. You look at some of these combinations to scale and you gotta scratch your head. I, I was scratching my head when it happened as to why you would do that. So when you really kind of look under the covers of these investments, you start to see it wasn't so much the operator as it was some pretty poor investment decisions, I think. Can you talk a little bit about the foreign investment? I know that you know, over the last couple of years, we've seen an acceleration of Chinese investment in the senior, uh, senior market, and then it kind of tapered off. And where, where are you seeing that now, and, and what do you see? What's going to happen in the future? I mean, we, I mean, we saw them come in pretty strong a couple of years ago into, you know, I think kind of personally looking for yield. You know, you saw them buy a lot of uh, skilled nursing uh, portfolios um, where they were just kind of landlord. Um, and they came in, you know, with a pretty good force there and, and, and bought a lot of assets. But, but they have some regulatory issues over there where their government can kind of put a pause to it. And they have because of other investments that have not done well in other asset classes where it's just real estate. So we've recently seen a pivot where they're trying to invest into operations because you know, a lot of all these countries are behind us in terms of taking care of their aging and they have many more people than, than, than we have. So we've seen them recently inquire about buying into operations with the real estate because they, they need to learn and then you know, kind, of, kind of you know, retrench it back to their, to their country. And then, they were kind of the first to come in, and now we've seen you know some other firms from the Middle East and and also from you know South Korea be interested in investing in our space. The scale they like to invest in is usually large, which our world is not. When I mean, you think about it, that big to, to 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 take in this amount of money, um, but it's ebbed and flowed. It's slowed down a little bit now because of kind of what's going on between our our two countries. But you know, I think it's it's been active. I think you know. Kent here, he's, he's worked directly with the Monster Investments. He might be able to add something to that as well. Yeah, Jason's absolutely accurate. It, uh, you know, they've invested in senior housing, uh, both for yield and for education purposes. Uh, you know, they're trying to advance their operation capacity and ability in China and other countries. And, um, but the government has basically shut down their real estate investments uh, as of last October. Let me ask just one question to follow that up, and I think this will finish the panel. I, I'm curious, we've been close to a number of deals where they, they've been, where Chinese investors, for example, have been looking now to do operations and real estate. And over the past six months to a year, I'll tell you that I haven't seen any of them come off, right? None of them have, have gotten to the point where they actually had to get through the Committee on Foreign Investment or anything else. Hey, are, are we seeing this happen on a regular basis, or is, it, is that sort of the general experience, is that there's additional interest, but it's, it's, um, it, it's broken on the shoals so far of getting to a deal prior to getting to CFIUS? Um, I think personally from the ones we've seen, um, you know, there's so much more work to get over the finish line that there has to be a substantial price premium to what's being paid in the United States. So if there is that premium, you're going to put the time in and kind of hope, you know, there's things you can't control, right, and hope it goes over. And the deal has to have size to make it worth that. Mm -hmm. So there's, you know, that goes back to my point. There's not that many. So, yeah, I, you know, 
I've seen a couple personally break down and there's a couple still going. And then you just kind of, you know, it's up to the operator and their capital partner to, to how long they want to try to do that. Because it is, it can be mind numbing how much you have to go through to, to, to close a <laughs> cross-border transaction. Hmm. Yeah, more than just the investment, well, we've talked to some large, um, you know, Chinese firms about Union Life and a few others about bringing their uh, staff over here to learn the, the business of caring for seniors. It, it really is not uh, a consideration, obviously, in, in the Chinese culture to have senior housing. It, it's looked down upon as a job. So there's not a lot of training around that. I think the best kind of investment or the best partnership that we would look for initially would be to have them come over, live in our communities, work in our communities, learn what we do. And that's kind of been the conversation. We, we haven't been successful in engaging that yet, um, but I think that will be kind of, and, and has been in some other cases, business cases, the first step before the real estate plays start really hitting frantically on investments. Thank you for joining us for this episode of BDO's Health and Life Sciences Rx podcast. If you enjoyed the show, we hope you'll visit iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. You can also subscribe to BDO's Health and Life Sciences Rx blog by visiting bdo.com slash blogs slash health and life sciences slash subscribe.